0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at uh, the attributes of God's holiness this morning. And if you just even think for a minute how many songs we sing that sing about the holiness of God. Or how often we read verses or say uh, his name is holy. But what does that mean Not only that, but as you consider the attribute of God's holiness, which is an attribute in and of itself. God is holy. This is an attribute that is very much attached to all of the other attributes. God is holy. He is set apart. But he's holy in his love. He's holy in his justice. He's holy in his omnipotence. He's holy in his independence and on and on and on. He is set apart in all of those attributes. And how should that affect our lives as the body of Christ? What does it mean that God is holy? And how does it affect us as the body of Christ? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And so if you would stand together and follow along as I read in Isaiah 6. I'm going to read the first seven verses. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word that you've given to us, Lord. And we pray for your help. That through it we would see you and understand you better. That we would know you more. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As we consider this attribute of God's holiness, I want to read a few quotes for you to set the tone of our time in this text. These quotes are from A.W. Tozer. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he writes this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What is it that comes into your mind when you think about God? Whatever that is, Tozer says, that's the most important thing about you as a human being. He goes on. Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. Again, he goes on. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This is what we ought to fear, that our thoughts of God would be low and casual, God is holy. He is other than us. That's what it means. He is, he's set apart from us in all of his ways. And we see that so clear, clearly in Isaiah 6. In the beginning of Isaiah 6 Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord. Now King Uzziah we learn about from 2 Chronicles chapter 26. He was a good king over Judah. We're not going to go there. I'm just going to give you a brief summary of this king and what we learn about him. He was a good king over Judah. He reigned over Judah, and in his reign, he accomplished great and wonderful things. He was a loved king, which was not always the case in Judah or Israel. He built cities. He conquered their enemies. Wealth increased under the reign of Uzziah. In fact, his name meant, the Lord is my strength. And he seemed to live that out. The scriptures tell us that the Lord gave him success. The Lord made him to prosper. But as the story of kings go, the story changes. And what we learn is that Uzziah became very proud in his success. He forgot God and he lifted himself up in his heart. He exalted himself. He thought that he was greater than he really was. He thought of Uzziah. He thought, I'm a really great king and I deserve honor. And in his pride, we learn that he goes into the holy place to offer incense That was the priest's role. God had not set apart Uzziah to perform that duty. Uzziah thought he was great enough to serve as king and priest, but God struck him with leprosy. And he lived separated from the house of God for the rest of his life. He lived as a leper and he died as a leper. And that's the background to coming into chapter 6 of Isaiah. Where in the beginning of chapter 6, Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is who Uzziah is. And just as he had died, Isaiah sees this great vision. And there is... Clearly, a distinction that's being made here. There's a distinction being made between one who lifted himself up and who exalted himself and one who is truly worthy of being exalted. One who is rightly lifted up. One who is seated on a throne rightly. Who's worthy. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This king that he beholds is sovereign. He truly reigns over all of creation. This is what Isaiah is seeing. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, reigning, ruling over all creation. And the train of his robe, he says, filled the temple. This train, this massive train that filled fills the temple, points to the glory of the one who bears the train. If you think of a wedding and the wedding gown with the train coming off of the back of the gown, that's a a symbol of glory for the bride. Well, in this case, this this train fills the temple and it's it's pointing to God is the most glorious being there could possibly be. He is all glorious. And then... Isaiah points to other creatures that are there. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. This creature. John seems to describe in, in the beginning of Revelation. Covered with eyes all over. Under the wings. All around. Flying and worshipping. The word seraphim comes from the word we we get the word burning from. So like rays of the sun, this brightness are these creatures, the seraphim, bright and shining, and yet they are insignificant. Insignificant in their glory, insignificant in their brightness compared to the one who is seated on the throne. If you think about it, if you think about John's description of the seraphim, and if you think of Isaiah here, seeing these seraphim with six Wings covering their face, covering their feet, flying, worshiping the Lord. If we saw one of them, one of these creatures, if one of them somehow flew down and, and, and came and we saw them, we stood and we saw this creature covered in eyes, we would crumble in fear. And yet... These creatures are insignificant. They do not look at themselves and declare greatness about themselves. They have one, one goal, one aim. The worship of the one who is on the throne. In verse 3, Isaiah says, One called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Again, and again, and again, and again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It is it's interesting how quickly we become, we grow tired of saying or singing specific lines. We get in little, like, um, church debates about that stuff, right? I don't like that song because it's just the same line over and over and over. Imagine. Right? Why? Because they behold his glory, and there's nothing else to say. Holy, holy Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. These creatures never cease to call out that God is holy, that God is set apart in all of his ways. The psalmist writes in Psalm 99, starting with verse 3, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Psalm 99 verse 5, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, footstool. holy is he. Psalm 99 verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. He's holy. He's set apart in all of his ways. You consider that word holy and think about the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It helps us understand what what this idea of God being holy means. When you think about the tabernacle, it was a place that was set apart, distinguished from all other places, set apart from evil and sin in the world. The first room in the tabernacle is called the holy place. That place was set apart for serving the Lord. But that was not the only place in the tabernacle. There's a a place that's separated by a veil, Exodus 26, verse 33. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. And the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was the place most separated from evil and sin and most fully devoted to God's service. It's this picture of being separate from, separate from creation, separate from sin, separate from evil. And God is Perfectly that. He is set apart from all that is evil, all that is unholy, all that is not pure. God's holiness should remind us that he is qualitatively distinct from each and every one of us. We can't even comprehend. In fact, Tozer writes this. We may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness, we cannot even imagine. We, we've said this over and over in this series. We, we don't even begin to scratch the surface as we talk about these attributes. We're, we're, just, we're just barely scratching the surface of who God is and how great and worthy he is. And when we speak of his holiness, we don't get it. Psalm 24, verse 3, the psalmist writes, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? There's a uniqueness, there's a greatness to God. He is not common. That's what the psalmist is saying here. That's what he's getting at in Psalm 24. That's what Isaiah is experiencing in Isaiah 6. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Exodus 15 verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You are set apart and majestic and glorious in all of your ways. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So as we consider that, as we consider that God is holy, he's set apart, and then our minds can't even grasp it, we can't even comprehend the distinction. How are we to respond to him? To this God who is holy, set apart in all of his ways. What does that mean for us and how do we respond? Verses 4 and 5 help us. Creatures created by this holy God is to recognize the distinction. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. And we are not holy, we are not pure. Tozer again writes this, The sudden realization of his personal depravity came like a stroke from heaven upon the trembling heart of Isaiah at the moment when he had his revolutionary vision of the holiness of God. What is he recognizing here in verse 5? What did Isaiah deserve? First, First of all, we would say he didn't even deserve to see Right? He didn't deserve to be there. He didn't deserve to get any glimpse whatsoever of God, his throne, and his holiness. But he's there. And being there, what does he deserve in this moment? He deserves to be crushed. He deserves to be cursed. He even acknowledges this. Woe is me. That's a a calling down of a curse on oneself. Woe is me. Cursed am I. There's a recognition of, of the distinction between him and God. Why? Why does he say that? Woe is me. Cursed am I. Because I am a man of unclean lips. Now that is significant. If we think about Uzziah... And this distinction that's being made between King Uzziah and the true king, God. Uzziah was unclean for sure. That's how people thought of him at this point. Once a great king, now a leper. In fact, that's what it says when he died. He died a leper. That was his identity. He was unclean. God had cursed him with leprosy. But standing before the presence of God and seeing his holiness, Isaiah proclaims, I'm unclean. I'm the one cursed. I'm the one undeserving. I'm the one unholy. This is the first way that we respond to God and his holiness. To recognize we are an unclean people. We're an undeserving people. And how does God respond to this approach? Isaiah deserves to be cursed, but the holy God moves toward sinful men. Verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There is forgiveness and atonement for sin by God's action alone. We deserve to be crushed. We deserve to be cursed. And yet God moves toward us, acts on our behalf. God does something to bring about atonement. And this is a beautiful picture of atonement and salvation here in Isaiah's vision. Isaiah will later write of what redemption looks like and what being cursed looks like. Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him." He has put him to grief. Now, who's the him in all of this? It's it's Jesus. It's God's son who came in the flesh to bring about atonement, to take the curse upon himself. Isaiah rightly before the throne of God says, I am cursed. Cursed am I. But God has a plan for atonement A plan to make it possible for Isaiah to be holy and blameless before him through the crushing and cursing of his son, Jesus Christ. Only in Christ can God's holiness be a source of delight for us rather than a fear of judgment, which is a right response standing before the presence and holiness of God. But in Christ, the unholy are made holy. He takes the punishment. Christ is crushed and sinners are made clean. Sinners are made holy. In fact, Paul rejoices in that in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him that in Christ we are made set apart he makes us holy he enables us to enter into his presence when you think again of psalm 24 the question that the psalmist asks who can ascend the hill of the lord and who can stand in his holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation You, you read those two responses who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully we're hopeless but Christ is not Christ ascended the hill of the Lord. Christ stood in his holy place. And Christ was crushed and cursed on our behalf and credits us with this righteousness. Enables us, equips us to stand in his holy place. And as a holy people, we respond in worship. We are those who worship in response to the holiness of God and the holiness counted to us. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. As this proclamation of praise worship is being spoken forth again and again holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is filled with this glory it says that the foundations of the shre- threshold the the, the the building shakes at the sound of the praise you consider that as a people set apart in fact first peter chapter two peter peter Recognizes our separateness. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You've been set apart now to proclaim these truths. You've been set apart now to worship in a way that exalts and magnifies God. Our worship, the way that we worship as people who have been made holy should show how great God is. When the world comes to us and observes us and the way that we worship, the way that we worship the Lord, the way that we proclaim the truth about Him, what will their opinion of Him be? Be. And think about that. Someone wanders in off of the streets this morning and, and observes us. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What will their opinion of God be based on how they observe us worship him. The angels proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory, shook the thresholds of the room. So it ought to affect the way that we worship Practically, corporately, we worship through singing. So if we were just to be practical about it, it ought to affect what we sing. It ought to affect what we sing. Our lyrics should be true. They should be biblical. And it should affect how we sing. It should affect how we worship. It should affect how we approach Worship. You consider this scene in Isaiah. It is a weighty thing. As a people who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. How ought we to approach corporate worship? If God is holy... If God is set apart, should we come carelessly? This is going to bug some of you, okay? Should we come late? Malachi chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished, for I'm a great King, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. What's the point of what he's saying there? There are people, priests, who are coming together, and they're careless in the way they're making their offerings. They've promised what the Lord has required, a pure offering. But they're giving leftovers. They're giving what really was insignificant for them it didn't cost them anything it didn't matter to them really and they're just giving it in their heart and and even what they're saying is this is a weariness to us is that what we display in the way we approach that this is a weariness or that this is what we long to do because god is holy and he's worthy and Because he makes it possible for sinful people to come before him. He makes us holy. And we ought to respond with gladness as we seek to worship him. In fact, the psalmist, Psalm 33, verse 21, For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Psalm 97, verse 12, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. There ought to be be a spirit of gladness in us as we come together to worship the holy God. I would say to you this morning, if you're here and you don't know him, you don't have a relationship with him through Jesus, I want to encourage you. The prayer room is going to be open in just a few moments as we sing. I would encourage you, go there. Surrender your life to the Lord. He is holy. And our only hope of standing before him without fear of judgment is Jesus Christ who came and gave his life was cursed for those who would trust in him. He makes a way for your sins to be forgiven. God's son was crushed for the sins of those who would believe. We're going to go into a time where we partake of the Lord's Supper. And I I want to say again, I want to read to you again as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. What I said earlier. This truth that the, ch- the chastisement that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's what we remember in partaking of the bread and cup. That Isaiah writes, All we like sh- sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. Only in Christ can God's holiness be a source of delight rather than fear of judgment. Christ makes the unholy holy. And as we partake of the bread and the cup, we remember He takes the punishment. He is crushed. His body is broken. And sinners are made clean. His blood is shed. And we are made holy. Our sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. Father, we thank you that you are holy and, and in your holiness you move towards sinful people. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve to be forgiven. Like Isaiah, we deserve to be cursed and crushed and yet Christ has taken our punishment upon himself your judgment your wrath and so we praise you and we thank you and we ask you father that you would work in our hearts even as we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup lord work in our hearts for your name's sake you are holy you are set apart in all of your ways and we are needy and desperate people and we pray these things in christ's name amen